0: Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best Of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now, let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi. Hi. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, and today we are joined by Scott Carney, who you may not recognize, but he is an investigative journalist and an anthropologist, and he's written a book, What Doesn't Kill Us, and uh, his reporting has taken him to some of the most dangerous and unlikely corners of the world, and it's a fascinating exploration into some of the strategies that you could personally employ to improve your metabolic efficiency and your overall health. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, you have a very interesting book uh, and it basically focuses the large part of it on on Wim Hof, who, who many people watching this have heard of, uh, and I was intrigued with his work. But he has a very thick Danish accent, and it's, as you know, difficult to communicate with. And I heard your your interview with Ben Greenfield, and was very impressed with your ability to articulate some of his philosophies. But not only did you do that, you actually explored his uh, training and. Uh, sort of give, giving away the the surprise at the end of the book, but you actually climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest mountain in Africa. Not only did you climb it, you climbed it in shoes, shoes and shorts, shirtless for most of the way. Not only did you do it that, but you did it in record time, like in 28 hours, faster than anyone's ever done it before. Well, that's so, not quite true, but I did it very
1: fast. Okay, uh, so you were
0: behind, Wim. You were in the. Were you were in the first group? Did I mix set no, up.
1: the The fastest ascent ever was actually six and a half hours by wow. a person who had acclimatized themselves to the altitude previously. Okay. Uh, so, an ultra runner person. But the thing that was amazing about our ascent is that we did it without any acclimation, which is something that is basically unheard of. It usually takes about
0: five to ten days to get to the top. Yeah. And you had consulted with some, I believe, a military expert who had who had were really skilled in making projections and predictions as to how many people would develop altitude sickness and have to turn back and like 80, 90 percent. And why don't you comment on that? Just to sort of well, going backwards, putting the cart before the horse, but we'll go into fine. the details in a, in a bit, bit.
1: Yeah. So the US Arium, which is the environmental unit for the US Army, has really advanced tables for uh, a high altitude ascents. And they predicted that at seven 70% of us would come down with acute mountain sickness, which is uh, where your you know blood oxygen level is so low that you go starting at headaches to swollen limbs to cardiac arrest, uh, pulmonary embolism, you know death. And they predicted that we would have 70% come down with that condition. Uh, instead, uh, about 92, 93% of us made it uh, up to the top. And Uh, The first group where where I was in, we did it in 28 hours, which is incredibly fast. When we asked the Dutch Mountaineering Association uh, Mm -hmm. uh, what our success rate would be, uh, they predicted a 100% fatality rate. So we (laughs) much better than that. (laughs) All right.
0: So that's a powerful testimony to the physiological benefits of the strategies that Wim is teaching and uh, you didn't come into this as if actually an advocate of this approach you came in it to, to debunk him as a, as a radical skeptic and and mm-hmm. thought he was harming people so why don't you take us through that journey
1: sure well so i'm an investigative journalist and and over the course of my career i have examined a lot of sort of false gurus people who make really advanced spiritual claims and uh, and occasionally end with people dying or getting hurt, losing all their money, that sort of thing. And actually, the previous book that I had written, A Death on Diamond Mountain, explores not only my personal experience with a friend of mine who died on a meditation retreat in northern India, uh, but also the death of a man named Ian Thorson in the deserts of Arizona while studying with a sort of a very controversial Tibetan guru named Michael Roach. And Roach made this, these claims that he could give you superpowers through meditation, things like levitating, things like walking through the walls, like, things like telepathy, these, these things that, which are in the yoga sutras uh, considered siddhis or miracles. Now, when I heard about Wim Hof, uh, I thought that he was going to be another very sketchy guru like Michael Roach because his claims were that he could control his body temperature at will, consciously control his uh, autonomic nervous system and his immune system, which aren't quite as grandiose claims as this guy, other guy I looked at, but uh, potentially dangerous when because what Wim Hof is famous for is his incredible resilience to but, you know, the first time I saw it, it was a picture of him sitting on an iceberg uh, somewhere north of the Arctic Circle in just shorts, you know, dirtless in the cold. And he looked sort of happy. He, he has the record uh, for uh, an Arctic marathon, uh, you know, again, barefoot in his shorts. Uh, he's, he's done uh, marathons in the Sahara. He's hiked two-thirds up the way Mount Everest also in his shorts. And so I knew he had some of these abilities. He'd had a history with this. However, what I worried was that when he claims that he can teach these things, what might be his innate biological abilities are really the false claims that could get someone killed. So I had a a, uh, assignment from Playboy magazine to go there and, you know, write about his training. And, you know, I got off the plane and initially he's not a very uh impressive person you know he's a, a you know a dutch fitness guru he's not you know not incredibly tall he's got a big ruddy nose uh from years of alcoholism he's a smoker uh he doesn't smell so great his speech is very disorganized and uh i was you know i was like oh this guy is probably a sham mm-hmm. and when i get off the you know so so he meets me at the airport we're in roclaw this is the polish winter um, you know, I like to say it's the it's the same winter that you know stopped the Nazi army. It's the same winter that Napoleon you know turned his armies around. And here I am. I'm taking a cab with him into the the mountains of that area, uh, and he says basically that in a couple of days I'll be standing out in my shorts and a shirt and heating myself up consciously and have no trouble. And I thought that was sort of crazy, uh, but. As an anthropologist, as an investigative journalist, as somebody who believes in facts, I can't just go there and say, you know, just write him off, full stop, without giving him a chance. So I say, okay, I'm going to try your method for a few days, and the second that I start feeling this is sketchy, that this is no good, I'm I'm out. Uh, and it turns out things are pretty cool. Uh, the first thing he teaches is this breathing method, uh, which looks a lot like hyperventilation, uh, where you, you sort of breathe deeply and hold your breath, and then you breathe deeply and hold your breath. And I knew that I could normally hold my breath for about 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds. And uh, I do his breathing method, and I'm all of a sudden I'm holding my breath with no air in my lungs, I've emptied my lungs, and I'm holding my breath for two minutes at a stretch, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, And then he does this other thing where you breathe and you hyperventilate, you breathe and you hyperventilate. And then he says, let all the air out of your lungs and just start doing push-ups while holding your breath. Now, normally, I could do about 20 push-ups. I was sort of a a normal guy, not not, not a fitness freak, anything like that, I could do 20 push-ups. With his method, in 15 minutes of learning it, I did 40 push-ups, and they were easy. And I was holding my breath. And I thought, wow. Wim has figured out something about the body, which is really, really interesting. And maybe that's why a couple hours later, I said, okay, I'm going to give his whole shirtless snow thing a chance. And I strip off all my clothes. Basically, I'm in underwear. underwear. Uh, and I walk out and I put my feet in the snow for the first time. And he's like, you're going to stay out here for five minutes. And I'll tell you what, Doc, it hurt. <laughs>
0: it how, hurt. How, cold, how cold was it?
1: Oh, I mean, we're probably talking... 25 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, but you know, I was living in LA at the time. I'd lived in India for a long time before <laughs> that. You know, I am used to an eternal summer and I put my feet in the snow and it felt like walking over hot coals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and what ha- what's happening there is, you, you know, you're triggering this response in your body called vasoconstriction where the the, the, the vein, so the arteries in your feet uh, will squint shut to, to push the blood to the core. And, but I'd never really experienced that, at least not in a sort of an intentional way, because I had never gotten cold really before in my life in this way. Um, so it hurt in five minutes. It was super painful. And then, you know, we jump into a sauna right after that. And... You know, the process of vasodilation which is where your arteries open up that hurt even more and i was like "Whim, this is a horrible terrible method why are you teaching this and he's like yeah of course it's gonna hurt you've never done this before but just wait till tomorrow and i'm like okay I'll, 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 you know i was there for a week so the next day i'm standing out in the snow and that same feeling of panic and pain doesn't set in for 10 minutes which is like you know, doubling You know your resistance into such a short time and you know we just kept on doing this for a week and we're jumping in cold water we're rolling in snow and all that stuff by the end of the week i'm standing in the snow in my shorts sweating in this polish winter and i'm there for an hour and there's no there's no problem uh at the end of that journey you know with him i hike up a mountain in poland uh, again, wearing just shorts in the middle of the blowing winter, we're talking about two degrees Fahrenheit. I'm on the mountain for eight hours, and I just sweat the whole time. And I knew that whatever Wim was doing, it it worked. Like there was something special here, and I had to sort of reevaluate what I thought about these sort of gurus who have these ideas that that seem so uh, impossible. And I realized that Wim didn't. Wasn't offering superpowers, right? He was offering human powers. He was offering things that that humans have an innate ability to adapt to the environment around us. And all was he was doing was giving me a method to learn how to control some of these processes in my body.
0: Yes, an interesting journey indeed. And you turned from a skeptic into an avid believer, and and uh, actually went through a whole journey where you changed your whole position. Now, are you a native Californian or? No,
1: I'm from Rhode Island originally.
0: Okay. So you did experience winter as a a child, but essentially in your adult years you had moved more wisely to more comfortable climates. But uh, let's let's take a tangent there because yeah. one of the primary premises in your books, in your book rather, is that this technological sophistication that we've developed over the last century yeah. and, and some change mm-hmm. has really allowed us to live in a climate a climate control situation where which varies very limited. I mean yeah. it's this narrow comfort range. And most everyone watching this is in their comfort range. Mm-hmm. So, th- and that's really what I want to focus on because that's such a magnificent piece of information that's so foreign to everyone. Because mm-hmm. it's in, in our, essentially, there's not many people that are over 100 years old. So, in our entire mm-hmm. conscious memory, that's been our experience. We have no reason to believe that exposure to these harsher conditions might be beneficial. So, right. maybe well, we can talk about that because it's a fascinating concept
1: yeah, well, you know, you think about what our species, how long we've been around, and hope that's Homo sapiens sapien has existed for about two hundred thousand years. And that's like your exact biology um to that that sort of prehistoric caveman. And before that, you know, there's about three billion years of 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 evolution of of our you know line. and and in that time, Whatever creature we were at that time has to deal with with the variability of the environment. Like you, could, they could never control the environment around them. So, in order to survive, they had to adapt to changing pressures, changing heat, changing cold. And the creatures that didn't uh, adapt didn't pass on their genes. Uh, and you know, if you think about it this way, think of the caveman, you know, and there's a snowstorm coming, and you know he has to survive this snowstorm. Uh, if he if he would never have have made it through if, if his body was like "I'm going to go change in like a month or two, I'll get ready for it no like our body has to move and change incredibly rapidly and and you know in that two hundred thousand years, you know we crossed the sahara we, we we colonized Europe, crossed the Alps, crossed the himalayas uh, crossed the pacific and and really populated the entire planet with only a whisper of what any of us might consider modern technology. Now, then comes the advent of sort of the modern world, you know, where we have control over our environment through central heating, through air conditioning, through things like this. And that's like maybe 150 years that we had that sort of total control to give us comfort. And and where change was con- was constant in our prehistory now it's homeostatic it's it's comfortable it's 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 not moving and all of those systems that we had to adapt to the environment are now latent they're not really doing anything and and it turns out that we actually need those variations. Like we evolved to have that change and those changes sparked changes in our body. Like I mentioned vasoconstriction, which is the, the squinching of your arteries to keep your core warm. Well, that would happen just all the time in general. And if you think about your arterial system, we have about 60,000 miles of tubing that run throughout our body. And the arteries, which are the the, the tubes that carry the blood away from your heart, uh, those are lined with smooth muscle to h- allow vasoconstriction to happen, and you know normally, in in evolutionarily, those would always be clenching and opening, clenching and opening. But now, you know, I could get all the way up to about thirty, what two or thirty-three, when I first met Wim, before I had a serious uh, vasoconstriction response, like a really strong one, because I just never needed it before. And th- what this means is that we have all of these muscles in our circulatory system that just aren't getting exercise. There's no lifting weights for our arterial system. And, and, you know, this means that the guy with the gym body, that six pack abs and all that stuff may may maybe look very physically healthy, but actually have a a fairly degraded uh, um, uh, arterial system uh, because just because they haven't been stimulating it. And we need this external stimulation to really uh, live a full human life and really use all of our biology. And, and that vasoconstriction is just the start of my examination, like that's just the most obvious, most easy. But you know, there are things that there's autoimmune, like serious autoimmune impacts with this uh, uh, treatments for diabetes, obesity, and all of these things that 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 are important because you know we used to think that that human health relied on diet and exercise, and if you just got the right nutrients and foods and and you exercise enough and use those foods and nutrients, you'd have a great life. You'd you'd be healthy. But what this book uncovers and what what WIM and sort of these other journeys that I've been able to, to, to go on have shown me is that there's actually a third pillar and that the third pillar is the environment. And the environment you inhabit has a serious impact on your life. And if you ignore it, you're, you're not doing your biology any favors.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it really is an underlooked or underappreciated element of, of health. I mean, as you mentioned, the primary focus is on your foods and exercise Mm -hmm. food being far more helpful but and I'm not sure if how you categorize uh, exposure to light which I think is another is part Mm -hmm. of the environment or actually a fourth pillar but I think that's that's way up there with food Food with respect yeah. to its impact on health, and
1: sure.
0: but but we're not going to go down the the light uh-huh. issue because that's not really one of Wim's specialties, but the environmental exposure clearly is. So mm-hmm. what I wanted to focus on now is you uh, referenced the improvement in some of these other diseases like obesity mm-hmm. and diabetes, and one might be wondering how that occurs. Right. And you know the the clear thing that virtually very, virtually no one or very few people, especially clinicians, appreciate is that this cold exposure or cold thermogenesis induces bat or brown adipose tissue, which is incredibly mitochondrial dense and can Mm -hmm. nourish the mitochondria. I mean, they, they improve the mitochondrial function. So that is one of the reasons it explains it. So why don't you share with us your journey towards that understanding Mm -hmm. and practical application?
1: Sure. Well, you know the first challenge that any human has when they're born is maintaining a constant body temperature. Well, you know what you, the word you use was thermogenesis, which is which is right. And and you know as an adult, the way you heat yourself is through your circulatory action, your muscle movement, your digestive action, and these things sort of work together to maintain a body temperature about ninety eight point six. Now, for a baby, when they're born, they don't have a developed muscular system. They don't have a developed digestive system. Their circulatory system isn't that great. And they have, they're really small, which means they have a high surface area to mass ratio, which means they lose heat very quickly. So babies have a really hard time surviving uh, the first years of their life, which is why we put premature babies in incubators. You know, that, that's how we, they survive. But the babies do have one trick up their sleeve to survive. And it's those rolls of baby fat that you can see, you know, you see this chunky baby. Uh, And what they, that fat, which is mostly white fat, what you're seeing, which is the normal stuff that, you know, you might have around your, your spare tire, around your belly, Uh, and also around their thorax and along their shoulders, they have this brown adipose tissue or brown fat. And what its role is is to suck white fat from their systems and burn it directly for heat energy. And it's incredibly efficient. So if you have a healthy baby that's just been born, they are surviving primarily on the metabolic activity of brown fat. And now scientists knew that brown fat was around, that that humans had it for for a while, but in general, they thought that it went away in adulthood, is that, that it was sort of just something that infants used. And then in 2007, a researcher over at Harvard was studying PET CT scans, uh, which is a, a sort of a cancer scan, a scan t- to look at sort of metabolically active tumors. And all of the scans had these weird blips in them, uh, around, along the thorax and along the the, the shoulders, that there was giving a lot of false positives because it would there was this metabolically active tissue. And after, a, you know, it, it's a, to make a long story short. Um, in examining old medical records, he discovered that those were the deposits where brown adipose tissue should be. And he made this cognitive jump, which was a sort of a big bang in this, this new field of research, which was that these rooms where PET scans were done, people were just in hospital robes, they were generally air conditioned, they were pretty cold, and that those blips were brown fat trying to heat the body passively. And this has sparked a billion dollar research industry trying to, to understand uh, if adults can use brown fat to heat themselves. And you know, there's pharmaceutical companies uh, East Coast, West Coast and in Europe that are dumping money into brown fat research because what they want to do is create a pill that will activate brown fat and then you'll lose weight. You'll be able to maintain your metabolism because brown fat runs on the, the, the fuel of the white fat in your body. And isn't that interesting? Is that that you know it's so hard to lose weight normally. Like when you, it's hard to exercise it off, it's hard to diet it off. You know, if you exercise, you might burn muscle before you burn burn fat. And and there's actual reason or one of the main reasons why you have fat is actually it's fuel to heat yourself if you have an active BAT metabolism. And Now, what we know from the research that Wim has been doing, I've been doing, and a number of other people have been doing, is that if you expose yourself to cold regularly, you will build up a mitochondria-rich tissue, very similar to brown fat, um, called beige fat. I don't know why they name it differently, but you recruit it through um, your white fat. And then that you can use to heat your body and maintain sort of a, a more active, passive metabolism.
0: Yes, indeed. So that that really is the conclusion that I reach after many decades of studying health is that uh, burning fat as your primary fuel is the goal. And mm-hmm. there's a number of ways to reach it. You can do it just with diet alone, but you have to be mm-hmm. really careful about it. And I've written a book, Fat for Fuel, that describes how to do that. And it's a really important tool for treating really significant chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease and diabetes sure. and- all the things that you do, but there's a tremendous synergy with this cold thermogenesis and improving the bat. What, what's shocking to me when I read your book is I didn't realize, for some reason, I just thought we knew about it all along. But it was nine or 2007—that's 25 years after I graduated medical school—that right. that we discovered brown fat, mm-hmm. and it has such an enormous. Uh, role in improving our health. And that's why so very few people understand it, because it's only been really known about for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the
1: really crazy thing is that we just didn't study it in Western humans who, are, who grew up in air conditioning and heating, right? If you look to indigenous populations, they all have it, right? You know, the one story I love to relate is the founding story of America, right? Where the pilgrims, you know, landed in their three boats right north of Cape Cod in the middle of the winter. And they didn't meet anybody until this guy walks up to them in early March in a cold winter day. And his name is Samoset. And he walks right up into their camp and he's wearing only a loincloth. And he says to them in English, welcome, welcome, Englishman. Do you have any beer? And you know, <laughs> Just to show exactly how... um you know, uh, just a, a litany of misunderstandings between Native Americans and Indians. Of course, the Puritans didn't have any beer; they were Puritans, right? And second, Samoset that he spoke English at all amazed them, and he he learned that through a uh, he was kidnapped as a kid by English sailors. But but the 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 Pilgrims were also so astounded by the fact that he was just in a loincloth that they gave him a coat, <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, great, thanks for the coat. That's cool." And and it turns out that the the algonquin indians of uh, of north america would would take their children You know, when they're very young, and and just put them in the snow outside their houses uh, for about 15 minutes a day every time it snowed, and then bring them back in and warm them up. And this constant exposure through childhood gave them an immense resistance to the cold. Whereas now, if you look at the state state seal of Massachusetts, you can see this picture of a scantily clad Algonquin and these like huddled up Pilgrims. And this is just the way it was. And Darwin has the same things when he's uh, going around Tierra del Fuego. He meets people in and and all this stuff, and it's just a normal human power that we have. And Western civilization has given us this enticing feel of being um, comfortable all the time. And and we 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 just think because we're so technologically advanced that that comfort should be available to us at the flip of a switch. But that's actually undermining who we are as people and leading to things like obesity, things like weak circulatory systems. And also, as I write in the book, a crazy number of autoimmune diseases too.
0: Yeah. that. Well, well let's touch on that a little bit later because I want to focus on the other ones first sure. uh, because that's a powerful thing. and And I definitely want you to share WIMP's Wim's experience in actually fighting off infections, which, you know, basically toxins that are administered to him and people he's trained that would kill the normal person that he just Mm -hmm. survives with virtually a grimace. That's it. Mm -hmm. So, but the, uh, one of the central issues here though, is that we have this latent capacity Mm -hmm. that the, the good news is that it's, we all have it. It didn't disappear. You can't get genetically extinguish it in a few generations, so we have it. So can you describe, uh, this? The, the, not so much the details of your training, because that's in the book, but how long it takes to achieve this adaptation, and then how long the benefits last for, and, and what is the frequency that you need to do this type of approach? Sure. Well, you know, in terms of
1: when I first met Wim, I was able to get an incredible endurance to the cold in just a week. Uh, You know, we did sort of constant cold training and breathing exercises throughout the week. Uh, And and then... uh, at the end of that week, I'd lost seven pounds of fat so, to prove that we were fueling this, this thing. And, you know, again, as I said, these adaptations have to come very, very quickly uh, because that's where how we evolved. And so you can start getting this by taking cold showers, uh, very, you know, and when you're in those cold showers, um, suppressing your... Uh, first instinct, which is to heat yourself with your muscles. So you're going to tense up and that's like the fight or flight response. And you you subvert that and you just turn that off. You try to relax in the shower. And what you're actually doing is telling your body, okay, we're not going to do the the easy method which is use our muscles to eat ourselves we're going to turn on our metabolism and you know you can do that now how long it takes to build up BAT in an individual is not known but there has not been there have not been great studies on that um, but we do know that BAT is generally a seasonal tissue so in the winter people have more of it and in the summers they have less so it's how often you're trying to use it and the body you know is pretty lazy in general it doesn't want to put any effort into creating uh, metabolically or energy-rich tissue if it doesn't have to. So maintaining it by taking, say, cold showers or ice baths or just giving variation in your routines is very important uh, if you want to have these, uh, these abilities. And how long it lasts if you don't do it, um, I don't know, and I don't want to find out, personally. I, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. I'm pretty excited about um, about having it and having these abilities, and it's not very difficult to maintain.
0: Yeah. So the the challenge here is you address and implied is that our bodies are relatively lazy, uh, and they seek to have the the least metabolic uh, activity Great. possible. Mm-hmm. So it's to keep us in the comfort zone. So these are not strategies that the average person is going to want to do, but the benefit is the way you feel afterwards. Right. And uh, you know that you're metabolically. Flexible, and you have this capacity to burn fat as a primary fuel, which really provides an amazing resistance to all these chronic degenerative diseases. So, right. I'm I'm wondering if you can discuss the you know the simple strategies that one can use. Because as we're recording this, it's the it's a massive snowstorm in the Northeast. Yeah. And like two feet two feet of snow. So those people certainly have the opportunity to do this, but. For many people, you know, that's not a, a common situation, but they do have access to the cold showers and perhaps even a cold pool. So maybe right. we can discuss some of the specifics there now that people might want to play with to get mm-hmm. some of these things and maybe even address the issue of if you could achieve this cold tolerance, cold thermogenesis without the breathing capacity, if they're independent of each other or they're required to get the benefit.
1: Uh, I, I think that they you really need both methods. Uh, be, I mean, if you just do something like turn down the thermostat in your house in the winter, um, that you know, to about sixty degrees, um, that will give you some passive in- input. Uh, but the the method and also cold showers. I mean, this will do something to do. This will tell your body. You're giving signals to your body to start doing things. Um, one very easy thing that I recommend to people is if you want to go, if you're a jogger or a runner or something like that, take a winter run with just uh, your shoes on and shorts, or and if you're a woman, a sports bra and, and go out for a run in, you know, 30 degree weather like that, you know, and the first minute or two is not going to be super comfortable. But after that, you're generating so much heat because you're moving that, that, it it becomes totally comfortable. It's it's not even an issue, and then you can run like three or four miles or whatever. You come back in, and what you've done is actually you're uh, you're actually giving all of these signals to all your the nerves on your skin to say, "Hey, let it's it's winter. We know it's winter now. Let's start generating BAT because that's what your body does." Uh, however, I think the breathing method is absolutely critical to. The method, and I think it speeds it up. I think it helps a lot. And uh, what it is 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 you know it's just hyperventilation. So it's like you know like thirty or forty deep controlled breaths, uh, in which you're blowing off CO2 out of your system, and you're increasing your O2 saturation up to 100 percent. And uh, and then you hold your breath with your with with the air out of your, your lungs, and you try to get to that point where you need to gasp, right? Where you feel like you're like, I gotta breathe, and. By doing that, what you're doing is interacting with an autonomic system in your body, uh, which is where the gas reflex is. And you're, you're, you're telling your body that you should have some control over this one system. And it's the same thing that you do in a cold shower when you're telling yourself not to shiver. It's the same skill of becoming mentally strong over sort of an autonomic reflex. And what this does, and these two methods work on sort of different systems, parasympathetic and sympathetic systems in the body, but what that does is give you a, a, like more resistance in the cold and has this autonomic um, trick, this autonomic uh, uh, ability to influence your your immune system uh, down the road, which is incredibly useful. So I wouldn't recommend, I mean, if you're super lazy and all you're going to do is 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 the cold shower, then great, it's not going to be bad for you. That's awesome. That will help. But really the breathing method only adds... 12 minutes to a morning workout you can you can do it
0: sure well and just a bit of a caution here because we would be medically negligent if we didn't insert that uh, sure. the breathing method uh, is clearly useful has enormous uh, benefits as we're discussing here but it's something you never 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 unless you have a, a someone spotting you you do this underwater because you can oh, yeah. die and there's a number of people who have died and yes and so that's a a ma- massive caution on this is you sure. don't do it underwater. So but you, but the, go ahead. You know, what's an
1: interesting thing about the breathing method. Uh, and I, I a hundred percent behind you on the underwater stuff. Cause that is the, that is the most dangerous thing about this method or people misusing it. But, um, if you do this breathing and as you hyperventilate and you blow out CO2, which is acidic, you will actually see a big alkalize, alkalizing uh, movement in your body. And I, and, and I don't write about this a lot in the book because I, I wasn't so interested in that side of body chemistry, but you can test yourself with, uh, with pH strips and you can pee on the pH strip beforehand and you can pee on the pH strip uh, after, afterward. And I always have saw a two point movement towards alkaline after doing this breathing because you're blowing out CO2, which is acidic in your system.
0: Yes, it's an interesting strategy, and who knows? I mean, we, we really haven't studied sure. the uh, uh, explanations or the mechanism as to why this process works. Right. So, um, But there have been some detractors of Wim uh, from a perspective of, uh, I mean, he's clearly innovated this method and mm-hmm. probably came up with independently, but there are other people, I mean, breathing is nothing new. No. Uh, it's been around for a long time. There's a lot of people who studied and that's been their life's career. And- Nor are ice baths. Also not new. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. But I'm specifically focused on the breathing now uh, because when we sort of came to it late in life, I don't know how when he did it. Was it in his 30s? Or 21. So. 21. Okay. I was, that was relatively early and I thought it was later. So there, there's a a similar type of breathing called holotropic breathing developed Mm -hmm. by Stan Groff. And Mm -hmm. I've never seen Wim reference that, but I'm wondering if you can comment on the similarity of his work to some of the other pioneers that preceded him.
1: Uh, I think it's very similar to holotropic breathing. And and Wim actually teaches this other method he calls DMT breathing, uh, which is virtually indistinguishable from holotropic breathing from what I've seen. Um, I I really don't think that Wim has uh, created something entirely new out of the ether, right? He's taken different parts and intuited a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, if we go to yoga, pranayama is not so different from mm-hmm. this conscious breathing. Uh, there is also in the Tibetan tradition, tumo, which is a type of breathing exercise and cold exposure that gives allows you to control um, your body temperature. So none of this is new. And in fact, you know, we go back into Russia and there's traditions of ice baths uh, of people like, you know, um, throwing ice water on them, themselves in Siberia. So I think that what we're doing is just, uh, you know, looking at, th- at 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 this method and at these ideas. And and he's a great package for how it does because he's also really involved in scientific research on his body. He goes into labs all the time, and. But to say it's totally new would just be inaccurate. You know, he's just a great um, doorway into uh, and and a great lens into uh, your body. And
0: yeah, maybe we can touch on some of the uh, immune capacity benefits that he has uh, demonstrated through this work, which uh, I'll let you describe because it's really quite fascinating and, and it has implications for autoimmune diseases too. Right. So,
1: Wim made this claim that um, to an immunologist in uh, uh, in the Netherlands named Peter Pickers, uh, that he could consciously suppress his immune system, which is uh, at that point, a claim that was uh, defined as impossible by science because there's no actual, at that point we didn't realize that there was a, a, a any mind immune system connection. And so Peter Pickers was famous and still is very well known for developing a clinical test to test the effectiveness of immunosuppressive drugs. And these are the sort of drugs you might take if you got a kidney transplant. You're, normally, if you just got a new kidney, your, um, your immune system would destroy this kidney because it would detect it as a foreign invader. So what you need to do is take a drug that suppresses the immune system so that the kidney stays in your body. And so what Wim claimed is that he could suppress his immune system and effectively make his mind an immunosuppressive drug. So Pickers had developed a test for these drugs, which is called the endotoxin um, test, which is uh, essentially E. coli bacteria, which has been killed in a laboratory. So it has all of the markers on it to tell, to tell the body that it is a foreign substance. And usually when you get injected with this, you or I, or 99% of people will have an immediate primary immune response. And a primary immune response is like a runny nose, headache, achy joints, fever, you know, the, all those things that you might get when you're first starting to get a cold or the flu. And uh, And if the immunosuppressive drug is good, uh, then you won't have those symptoms. Well, Wim, Said, okay, I can, without a drug, I can suppress my immune system. They injected him with this endotoxin and with a little bit of breathing, uh, he had no response other than complaining about a minor headache. And this was a really big response because it had never been shown in a clinical setting that you could do this. And they measured all sorts of things as cortisol levels, his epinephrine levels, you know, all, all what his body was doing. His blood actually remained resistant to endotoxin, even after it had been removed from his body and placed in another container for six days. It continued to be resistant. Uh, This was a very interesting study. because And the medical community said, well, maybe it's just because Wim is a freak, which is a totally good point to make. Maybe Wim is a freak. He seems freakish, doesn't he? And so what he did is the next year uh, and this was the, the a week after I was training with him in Poland. He took twelve volunteers from, Amsterdam, uh, from Holland and brought them to Poland to train them in the exact same training that I got you know climbing a mountain in your shorts and ice baths and breathing took them back to the Netherlands, injected all of them with the same endotoxin, and all of them repeated the same results. And this was published in a very prestigious journal called The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, And it's a huge study because if it shows that you can consciously suppress your immune system, this has potential impacts for every autoimmune illness out there in the world. Uh, Anything where your body is attacking itself. So think arthritis, think lupus, think Crohn's disease, uh, to some degree diabetes, to some degree uh, um, Parkinson's. And and all of a sudden, all of these people are starting to use the Wim Hof method to treat themselves for these um, for a sort of a huge variety of autoimmune illnesses. And in the book I explore, I look at four case studies of four different people who are, are, you know, using cold showers and conscious breathing to, to combat and reverse in some cases, Crohn's disease, uh, uh, arthritis and, and, uh, uh, Parkinson's And, and which is, you know, they're amazing anecdotes. I, these are not totally randomized uh, placebo controlled studies that have gone on for 15 years, but they're great bleeding edge results and they're real people and I've seen them myself. And, and I can say also from in my own experience, having done this breathing method for about three years, uh, sorry, six years, uh, since a kid, I've always been generally healthy, except for just one thing, which is I, I've always gotten canker sores, which are sort of like mouth ulcers. And, and because I was exposed to whatever the viruses that starts it, at a very young age, I started getting them at one. They could grow to be like about the size of a dime in my mouth, which means for me, they're just incredibly painful, difficult to talk, difficult to smile. And... And I had tried everything in the world to try to, to combat this. I tried alternative medicines. I tried Western medicines. I would, I, I did stupid things like putting salt on it. Cause somebody told me that would work. It was mm. horrible. painful. Since, since doing this method, I haven't gotten them at all. Uh, so when I do the breathing, when I do the cold, these just things don't surface. And they used to surface for me every two weeks. So for me, that's been amazing. Uh, not quite as impressive as Crohn's disease or arthritis, but still very cool.
0: And I think he's had some success treating MS patients too, hasn't he?
1: I believe so. I don't know much about those cases, though. Okay.
0: So, but anyway, it does seem to benefit autoimmune diseases when you apply it. So, I'm and <clears throat> I'm wondering if you could describe some of the uh, specific strategies if someone doesn't want to go to the extremes of using ice baths, which can be pretty uncomfortable. Now, Ray Ray Cronize has uh, trained with him. I think he started maybe a Pronsy. little bit before,
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, Ray Cronzi. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Oh, I thought it was Cronize. I I've asked him that like four times, and
0: yeah. he, he says he says Anyway, whatever it is, we know who we we're talking about. Yeah. So, but he trained, I think, a little bit before you did with Wim, and uh, he. About the, or about the same time, but yeah, it, around b- it, yeah. Back, back back in the days. <laughs> and he teaches this method of exposing yourself to alternating cold and hot showers, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 10, 15 seconds of each, which can work if you're in a relatively cold climate. But in the summer in the, in the South, it's not really going to be a good strategy. But mm-hmm. if you do have access to that, you know, doing that maybe 10, 12 times and then on cold seems to be useful. And he doesn't believe that you need to really go into the ice bath to get this type of benefit, so I'm wondering if you can comment on your uh, uh, your feedback on that. On his well, operations. I don't
1: I don't know everything about um, uh, uh method. I've uh, I've talked with him on a number of occasions, and I think he's really really smart because he came up with the idea of this metabolic winter hypothesis, which is that because of the way we we use the technology around us. Uh, we're essentially creating an eternal summer. You mentioned light before. Uh, that's right, right? So we with electric lighting, we've made daylight 18 hours a day, whereas normally it would vary uh, with the orientation of the Earth. Right? We would have...
0: Well, it's even worse than that because we made the transition from incandescent bulbs to artificial oh. LED lighting, which has these peak blue spectrums. is not full analog you know, mm-hmm. thermal lighting, so it's just... We're looking at epidemics of uh, macular degeneration because of this type of exposure. interesting! Separate separate issue.
1: Yeah, uh, I'd love to talk with you about that at some point, Um, uh, just for my own interest, because that's really uh, fascinating to me as well. Uh, But also then the eternal summer of the 72 degrees, no matter what. Like, and and we and it's not like mid to late summer. It's just early summer. It's just the best summer that we create all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, from his training, uh, he's in Alabama. Uh, He as i recall would do a lot of working out outdoors in about um 50 degree weather in uh, almost no clothing you know shorts and yep. uh and he also does ice baths i don't know exactly his method cuz i didn't actually study okay. with him there so but i mean I, I i have a massive respect for him
0: yeah well the the point being is is, is not to pitch uh one method versus the other but that sure. there is some likely the benefit without necessarily having to go into the extremes, uh, just going to ice water temperature, you can be at 65 or 55 or 45. You know, there's still some benefit there. You just may take a little bit longer exposure to get the benefit?
1: Well, there's actually two types of cold and and Kranzi would agree with me on this, that there's the immediate and visceral cold of with that, that starts up your fight or flight response, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that could be an ice bath. That could even be a cold shower, depending on, on the temperature that's coming down on you and where you are immediately. And there, so there's that immediate fast cold. And there's also a metabolically slow cold, which is just having a 50 degree, for instance, room, uh, that where your body you know, you're not tensing up to survive, but you're sort of just there all the time. And that works, you know, that also works. It's just keeping your temperature in your house at a, you know, relatively unadjusted uh, temperature is, it, you know, will let you lose weight. And it was interesting. I was looking at a, this really old medical textbook from the 1870s, 1880s, uh, where the author, he, he was a French author, was was talking about how the how great the cold is for treating all sorts of various things, uh, but the thing that fascinated me most about the book was that he said, you know, the normal temperature in the house is uh is sixty one degrees. Like that's where we're no, we're all comfortable. And I'm like sixty one degrees. Most people nowadays would
0: say that's horribly freezing. freezing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, you know, it's an interesting aside, but. The, the ma- one other major benefit, aside from your health, is that you'll actually have more income because you're going to spend less to heat your house when you sure. when you deploy these <laughs> strategies. So that's a that's a sort of a another financial incentive to consider this. Now, I'd like I was really impressed with one of the explanations of your book because I didn't understand what was going on when I personally had tried to apply this. I live in Florida, so I'm mm-hmm. able to have access to my pool and I don't heat it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: as the pro- progress into winter, the temperature would go lower and lower, and then at 62, I started to get really cold and I would shiver when I get out. Sure. But then after a while, you know, I, I, the temperature would continue to go down, I still challenge it and, and I felt comfortable like in the mid-40s, except for my yeah. ears, They would get cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was amazing to me what happened. But initially, in, in the transition prior to making the adaptative, adaptive response, mm-hmm. I would shiver Right. Uh, and it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be when I'm in the water. It's when I get out, like maybe five right. minutes later, and maybe. And you had an answer as to why that happened in the book, and it was really fascinating. I didn't. I didn't understand the physiology of it, but once I read it, it made perfect sense.
1: Yeah, well, it's called afterdrop, uh, and and it's it's uh, actually a potentially dangerous situation. It's something where if if somebody is stuck, you know, stuck under the ice in a lake, right. Uh, and it has hypothermia, you don't wanna warm them up quickly by putting them in a cold shower, um, be, or sorry, in a warm shower. And, and this is because, um, so vasoconstriction constricts all of the blood to your core uh, to keep your, you alive and, and warm. And then, and then when you warm up, there's the opposite, which is vasodilation where it opens up and, and recirculates that warm blood through the limbs. But if your limbs are very, very cold already, because you're, you're hypothermic and you've been in this sort of cold environment, what will happen is that the warm blood in your core will circulate through cold limbs and then return cold blood back to your core. And then your core, your core temperature will drop precipitously. So if you find somebody who is actually like in dangerous hypothermia, if you warm them up too quickly, their core temperature will drop and they'll die. Uh, You'll know, have a, a cardiac arrest. So uh, in the, while doing these trainings, you do uh, risk, to some degree, having a minor level of that afterdrop, uh especially when you're first starting out, before you're you're really teaching your metabolism to deal with this. And you know, one thing you can do to combat afterdrop is if, you know, as long as you're not too far gone from hypothermia, which you should never get there, because <laughs> you should be always practicing your, within your limits, but you can do an exercise such as push-ups, such as running, such as whatever it is to use your muscle movements. To to bring up your core temperature, that will do it safer. Yeah,
0: and you actually <clears throat> had to do that when you were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro because mm-hmm. in your progress up, uh, the you'd have to wait for other members in the group, and you'd be stopped. <laughs> your body, mm-hmm. your activity would stop, and you had to exercise those movements. Otherwise, you'd have this
1: is right. after,
0: aftershock or
1: after, after drop. drop. Yeah, after drop. Okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and it, it's not a it's certainly not a pleasant experience to have. No, uh, no, no. Uh, but. Uh, you know, it's also not, you you know, always fatal. It's just something, a body that, that, that goes through. And, and, and it's something that you learn about as you do this, but most of your listeners are probably not going to be climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro in their
0: shorts. I'm assuming, Uh, but no, no, they, they want, wouldn't consider something crazy (laughs) like that, but, uh, (laughs) but it was an interesting testimony. It's the same reason why people run marathons Mm -hmm. and other crazy events like uh, the Tough Mudder, which uh, has become popular in the US and uh, Mm -hmm. chronographically in the book, uh, you appear to do that before the Come on Kilimanjaro, but actually you participated in the toughest Tough Mudder course Mm -hmm. in the world, in in, the UK, Mm -hmm. and uh, did that right afterwards. So why don't you describe your experience in that, because it was uh, really interesting.
1: Yeah, I, this
0: is the, it's called the Tough
1: Guy, and it's actually the first obstacle course race that ever, was ever popular. It's, it's in the UK, traditionally held in the coldest week in January. And, you know, it's, it's a, an event where people will wear neoprene to compete in because they're running through cold water obstacles. And it's sort of a, a, you know, the challenge is not only the things you jump over and the barbed wire you crawl under and the electric shocks you get, but it's actually fighting the cold. Uh, and so everyone else is lined up. Ready to take this, take on this race in their sort of neoprene and big events. And I just line up in a, you know, my pair of shorts and uh, some shoes. And I, I was, and kicking what's, the depth, what's the temperature? My, oh, I don't, I, you know, I really don't know. Really cold? I think somewhere between <laughs> like horribly cold and really cold. Um, the, the year before, um, 300 people actually went to the hospital for hypothermia. This was a little warmer than that year, but it was brutal nonetheless. And I, uh, and I'm kicking myself. I was just in my shorts and I realized I should have been in like an American flag Speedo because that would have just been cooler. Uh, and you know, while we're sitting at the start line, it's pretty cold. I'm not moving yet. I don't like it. But as soon as I start running, it's, I just sort of kick on this program because I've been doing this training for a long time at that point. And I actually am warm this entire race as other people are freezing. They're like, oh, my feet are so cold. And I just have this smile on my face. And I think it takes me, oh, you know, I'm not a great runner. I think it took me like three and a half hours to finish uh, the race, you know, and like the top people probably finished like an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, that was three hours in the cold running through cold water obstacles and being warm the whole time. But the the biggest challenge for me was just not being a great runner. Uh, And you know, uh, the the people who were photographing the race were like, we always loved it when you walked by, because you're the only guy with a smile on his face. As <laughs> and, you know, once you start really appreciating the cold, it releases all of these great feel-good hormones. You, know, you get adrenaline and epinephrine and norepinephrine and all these, like, you know, awesome sort of, uh, you know, fight or flight hormones. And I have some measure of control over them uh, in these events. I mean, not consciously. I can't be like, release adrenaline. But like that feeling, um, I, I experience uh, the coldest joy, which is awesome.
0: Yes, it is. And it, and it gives you this environmental flexibility where you don't have to be restricted. You don't have to be pained mm-hmm. and massively uncomfortable when you are uh, exposed to this through to circumstances beyond your control. So it really mm-hmm. empowers you and it metabolically improve, improves you pretty radically. So- mm-hmm. Powerful therapy, powerful therapy intervention. And another mm-hmm. important neurohormone that increases uh, is dopamine,
1: mm-hmm.
0: especially if, if, if you have to get out of the cold. I mean, you feel so much better when you get out. It's like, yeah. wow, this is like... Yeah.
1: It's, it's always hard to turn that, like the hardest thing a human can do, I think in the world is probably sit in a warm shower and turn their back and turn that knob to cold. Like, I think that is like the hardest thing because you know, it's going to be like a little unpleasant, right? When you do that. And but if you do it and if you can get through that thing, um, then the first couple seconds for the cold water will not be awesome. You will not like it because you'll tense up and then you relax. And then all of a sudden it's wonderful and you sort of go through this barrier. Uh, and then it's like, hey, this really isn't so bad. What was I panicked about in the first place? And you know, I've never met anybody who, I, who, who when I tell them what I do, um, who has said, that sounds great. I wanna do that tomorrow. Like everyone tells me, some people can handle the cold, but for me and me especially, it's the worst thing in the world. But you know, that's what I used to say too. Like, these are just human things that we do, and and it's just because we have this fear in us uh, of 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 what of discomfort of like a, a moderate like mild discomfort that we don't like. And then once you get over it, you start realizing that you're stronger. And like, I can't imagine that anyone would even want to exercise, right? If you if there was, you know, if you would you lift weights weights at the gym if your muscles wouldn't grow, right? Would you run a, a train for a marathon if you didn't get any faster or get any better? Like no. You, you go through that temporary suffering to achieve a goal. And you can look at cold in the same light. and, and that has so many like, and various benefits you know, from you know, all the autoimmune ones, the weight ones, to just general um, uh, resilience that comes from it, it's, it's awesome.
0: Yeah, just one caution here, too, for those who are engaging in strength training, that even though the cold is great, you'd like to sequence, it's all about sequence. You don't want to do the cold after you strength train, because cold Mm. exposure is a very potent anti-inflammatory. It will suppress the production of reactive oxygen species that give you the benefits from strength training, so you kind of Mm -hmm. abolish all that hard work and don't get any benefit from it. So do the cold training before or a different day or whatever, but don't combine them right, right afterwards. Interesting. Yeah. So just a little tip, Uh, (laughs) but I'm wondering uh, two things, Uh, because you've been doing, you've done this for a number of years and you obviously have your circle of friends and associates Mm -hmm. and from your experience in, in lectures you've given, what percentage of people after they hear this message are going to adopt it? Is it like 10%, 20, 50? I think it'd be far less than 50%. Well, I have
1: no idea. You know, uh, uh, the people who who I find are most uh, uh, active in this are, are, it's two groups, it's it's performance athletes, people who want to get really good at any sort of, of performance. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole way that this mixes with high intensity interval training in a really beneficial way that we haven't mm-hmm. gone into and we don't really need to. Um, but but high end athletes love it. And the other people who love it are people who have autoimmune diseases, because the for them, uh, they have a stick chasing them, right? They're always being kicked, you know, chased by 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 the, the resurgence of this uh, of these autoimmunals. And those people I know are just fanatics about the method because it, it 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 works. And for other people normal people, I think you go you go through sort of waves, right? You go up and down, and 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 I feel great after I do the breathing in the morning and yeah. and and it's a cold shower. But sometimes I'll you know, want to drink coffee instead. And then once you skip it once, then you're going to skip it the next day and you're going to skip it the next day. And a month will go by. You're like, oh, I haven't done this forever. And and so I, I think that a lot of people go through those sort of back and forth, but it's it's really good to come back to it because if you compare how you feel when you're doing it versus when you're not. Uh, I think it's sort of like a no-brainer to, to do it. And in terms of how many people who read my book and take a cold shower, I'm really hoping it's close to 100%. Uh, yeah,
0: I would hope so too. <laughs> so it's interesting because you personally did not fall into either of those categories. You had, certainly had no autoimmune diseases and you were not a performance athlete. So, no. But uh, you really it was sort of an artifact of your assignment with Playboy magazine that's, that started this. But interestingly, once you engaged in the process, you're, you're rapidly rapidly took it up so mm-hmm. um. The, I'm hoping that this information on our site will inspire many people, catalyze their interest to apply because the benefits are not just for those two groups. It's really for pr- pretty much anyone who's interested in living a long, healthy life, especially longevity. I think there's a mm-hmm. enormous benefit there because it's all about improving mitochondrial function. And mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind that this cold, regular cold exposure will do that. So I'm wondering if you could describe what, you know, obviously you're well adapted to this. You've been doing it for years. So what what is your Uh, process look like? What does your program consist of? Mm. Well, in the morning, so uh,
1: it's changed uh, every now and then. Sometimes you sort of adapt it and and go, but right now it's, I wake up in the morning. I don't even get out of bed. I just lie there next to my wife who's also doing this. uh, And we start with the breathing method, which is 30 deep, controlled, rapid breaths. And it would look something like this. We'll go, like a little stop at the top. And then you, and you go and you do about 30 of those. You'll get lightheaded. Maybe you'll have tingly fingers, something like that. Uh, and then at the end of it, you let all the air out and hold it. Uh, and I usually have a stopwatch with me uh, I mean, on my iPhone. There's one. And then I hold it for about a minute like that. And then I repeat and I do I, I do 30 breaths and then air out and I do a stopwatch and I do it for two minutes. I hold my breath for two minutes. And the third time I'll do the same rep and I'll hold it for three minutes. And that's the, you know, and people will have different times. Don't worry too much about the times. Just be sure that you're improving with everyone. And that's usually not an issue. And, and then I'll do one more rep of breathing and I'll get out of my bed and I'll, and I'll do breath out pushups. So all the air out of my lungs and I just start doing push-ups and I do 50 uh, every morning. And I end up with a, I don't know why I do this, but I do a headstand at the end of it, and then I give my wife a hug, and then <laughs> I'm ready to go eat breakfast.
0: Headstands are really good. I mean, yogis <laughs> have been doing that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Far more effective than doing an inversion table, even mm-hmm. though they seem similar, mm-hmm. totally different results. Huh. Headstands are great, and inversion tables are not so great. Strange. Yeah, no, well, so, it's just that the, you were never designed to be pulled up by your ankles. We're standing in your head is a different process and it, and it doesn't put the tension and pressure on your tissues because you're actually compacting them. You're reversing it when you do an inversion table. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, cool. handstands are great. Uh, that, 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 good, good thing. So, what, what about the exposure to cold?
1: So, then after I'll go eat breakfast and I'll do my whatever I do. And then uh, I go later in the day, I'll take a shower. Uh, start off with hot um, and then I'll wash myself in a normal warm shower. And then I do the hardest thing any any human has ever done. I turn around and I turn it all the way cold. And I stay there for about a minute, maybe a little bit more, maybe less, but it doesn't really need to be in a crazy amount of time. And I, and I'm consciously trying to suppress that Um, tensing response uh, while I'm doing it. And I'm trying to get to that point, you know, think about you swimming in the Atlantic Ocean in the winter, right? The Atlantic's cold and you're swimming in it. And at first it's horrible. And then you're like, hey, I've been swimming here for a while and it feels great. It's fine. And I'm just trying to get to that point in my body and mind where I'm, it's fine. And then I can be done. Uh, but about a minute, at least a minute, uh, is 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 a, is a good thing. And then that's it. It's about a fifteen minute program every day. To most and of it's the
0: breathing. It's not. It's not really the cold exposure.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean. The, and but when I get a chance, if it's snowing outside, I'll go roll in the snow. I'll go shovel my 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 driveway if it snowed in, in bare feet and shorts. And you know, I you know, I'll, I'll I'll I try to take advantage of the cold when I when I see it. But it's not. Um, like time-wise, the the breathing is the the biggest part of the method. Um, another thing that I I, I would do is uh, when it's cold, when it's winter, I'll go for these winter runs. I'll just put on shoes and shorts, uh, you know, and run shirtless through you know the parks in here. I'll get a lot of head heads turning towards me, and that and and at first I was like, who's that guy? And now they're like, hey, it's that guy, <laughs> and uh, and I feel warm, and it's great, and it's uh, it's a really easy way to do this method because you're you're, you're, you're you know you have a lot of heat generated from the muscle movement
0: and is there is there any temperature at which you wear a hat a skull cap and some gloves yeah actually often when you're climbing the mountains climbing mountains
1: yeah I, oftentimes I will do a gloves and, and, and a hat uh, um you know you know your extremities like your ears for instance will get very yeah. cold right um and and you can't it's it's harder to move the blood into
0: those areas so I mean just be smart all right. So uh, any other tips before we go uh, recommendations sure. or summaries or points you'd like to emphasize?
1: Yeah, I would just say, you know, give it a chance like this, you know, it doesn't sound comfortable. Like, and this is the, the hardest thing for people to understand is like, oh, that's that ice bath guy. Right. But it's, it's really not as bad if you give it a, a shot. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's more information in the book and all that stuff. And, you know, I, uh, you know, take a look, you know, just, just, and and even if you don't read the book, try a cold shower, like that's Mm -hmm. the base, that's the the total minimum. And, and if you, you know, do want to examine the book, you know, it's on Amazon, it's on audible, it's just everywhere. And um, you know, I'm really just hoping that, that it, and I've been so happy
0: that I've affected so many people's lives so
1: far, like that's
0: awesome. Yeah, you're a powerful catalyst because as I mentioned earlier, uh, Wim has a uh, challenge in the English language, and you are very eloquent. No, uh, oh, thank you. You explainer are explainer of this. So uh, it's going to help a lot of people. There's no doubt in my mind. This is a really powerful principle that very few clinicians appreciate. That that you need this. Pretty serious variety of environmental exposure, and there's so many important metabolic benefits. Uh, And then, of course, integrating the breathing into it—it's a—it's—it's a a very powerful uh, strategy that uh, you can implement. And you know, I—I embrace it. I used to not really enjoy diving into cold water and even like in this low seventies, high sixties would be problem. And, but now, I mean, I could just go in under 50 and and it's just a little bit uncomfortable, but only for seconds, literally seconds. And and you really were, and you actually enjoy it. I mean, literally, and after a few seconds you're like wow this is great i've just dumped mm-hmm. in this morning it was like 56 and that's awesome. i thought it, i thought it was 65 it felt so good <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome well i'd yeah. love to talk with you at some point about uh, more about the light stuff cuz i'm starting to get really interested in light as well
0: um, yeah, we've a got a lot impact. we got a lot of information on our site you know just mm-hmm. you can talk about photobiology or photobiomodulation which is the therapeutic application of uh, a specific lighting modules to treat so many important diseases. A lot of the chronic degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, there's tremendous amounts of good studies now that show that it works. But just exposure to the sun is so powerful. And then, then it's staying away from the artificial lights. But right. yeah, so it's it's good. So anyway, your book again is What Doesn't Kill Us. Uh God. how quick, when I got I got the cover. Oh uh, perfect. So people can see it. They know they got the right one. We got I we
1: read. got the the guy in this his skivvies. Uh, is that Wim? No, that's a, that's a stock photo. Okay. Um, But it's cool. It's what, uh, how freezing water, extreme altitude, environmental conditioning can renew our lost evolutionary strength. So long subtitle, but, uh, it's a good read. I'm told.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely enjoyed it. And uh, the benefit of this is you don't really have to buy anything other than the book. I mean, it's not like we're selling, you know, just expose yourself to the cold and you're actually Mm -hmm. going to save money uh, Mm -hmm. if if you integrate this in the winter because your heating bills will definitely more than pay for the book. And help the environment. And you help the environment, and, and you'll help yourself and your family. You'll, you'll stay healthier, and you won't get as sick. I mean, look what Scott did. I mean, he had this these apthostomus titus that he's had every two weeks, and now they're gone, powerfully able to control his immune system. So thank you for your work. Thank you for... Um, being the the mediator of it in the English language to help people understand it in cl- in clear details that you're you're so gifted at as a as an investigative journalist so appreciate all your awesome. work well and thank you for having me on this has been a lot of fun